Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Patrick Watson on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. So you've got a new store called Back Label Wines. Mm -hmm. That's right. But you started singing opera back quite a long time ago. (laughs) That's right. In Montreal. And how Mm -hmm. did that all go down? Well, I started singing opera in high school, really. You know, it goes back even further. But, um, you know, I and I guess I didn't discover wine until I discovered the restaurant industry a little bit later through college. And by default, ended up stumbling into the back of the house in front of the house of a couple of really great spots with awesome programs. And from there, it just sort of became opera and wine, you know, for, for many, many years. And, you know, until uh, we decided to hang up the opera coat and, uh, and just pursue and keep going after wine. So you were in Montreal and then where'd you head next? Uh, Boston. So yeah, I went to McGill university, great music program, gorgeous city, not a ton of wine up there, right? But uh, I ended up in Boston at the Conservatory of Music. And from there, um, you know, like most people, I think, in those days or whatnot now, you know, you, you got to gotta pay for, for those student loans at some point. So I started waiting tables and cooking and uh, uh, you name it, any, any job they'd give me at a variety of different restaurants. And while I was singing, like most servers or cooks, uh, I was, you know, doing uh, either at night I was either on stage or, or in a kitchen or uh, waiting tables. So uh, and that sort of lend, uh, you know, it, I guess lended itself to a lot of different outlets within the, the restaurant industry for years, just ending up sort of being the seller rat for a number of different, you know, wine directors and beverage directors. And, but yeah, I ended up in uh, from Montreal to Boston and then Boston to San Francisco. And then I think it really exploded for me. There was a pretty, uh, it was kind of unavoidable. In terms the, of the wine thing. Yeah, at the restaurants that I worked at there. I mean, you know, you 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 had winemakers there every day in the restaurants in the city and uh it was uh, just again unavoidable. And so that led to being invited up to a lot of different places to come hang out, work, drink, taste, uh learn and then bring that information back to the customers and the consumers of of the city and and be able to apply it to that wine program and you know, it became much more than just a hobby at that point. Uh, it became more than just an interest as well. It became sort of a way of life. So, you know, singing, waiting tables, and then eventually be, you know, uh, work on the floor as a, either a wine director or some way a, and, uh, and that sort of led us to retail years later. Were there programs that stood out for you in terms of impact on your own view of what works or what doesn't work? 
I wouldn't say programs necessarily. I would say more the people I tasted with along the way. I was very lucky to constantly be working with just not mentors, but people who could really describe and talk about and find ways of uh, making it very approachable. You know, when you're when you're more terrified of of saying the wrong thing or or you know, and I think those early stages for anybody who's looking to get into the industry or learn more about it and try to talk about what they're tasting, what they're experiencing, you know, and it doesn't get until later that you get to go visit wineries and understand it a little bit more uh, differently, you know, and for, for a long time, we're, we're sort of left with the, you know, the people that educate us along the way. And a lot of those sort of starts with the name of the store, Back Label. It's really about the importer. We're, we've always been kind of tremendous advocates, I think, for, for a lot of the importers, because that's essentially where I've learned you know, directly from importers or wine directors, you know, or um, any anybody along the way that can really help break down and help me decipher and fill that vocabulary and figure out exactly what I'm looking for. Who are some of those people? In San Francisco, I worked at one market restaurant and I worked with a couple of managers, not even the wine director there at the time, who would constantly be at the beginning of every shift or at the end of every shift, opening bottles, talking about different different wines. And then of course, you know, when you get a chance to taste at the table directly with the winemakers. And in those days, you know, it was, it was Heights and it was Phelps and Barniente, you know, and, uh, what era was, was this like the early nineties? Yeah, this was early, early mid nineties. Yeah. 92 to 95 in that sort of world there. Uh, I moved to New York in 96. Yeah. And I was directly from San Francisco at that point. And, um, hearing the winemakers, not the the sommeliers speak about wine. Hearing people that were either making it or just wanted to, you know, describe it to the way that they knew it best, uh, I think was a big impact on myself. It, it helped sort of demystify it. It created a much more user-friendly approach for my personal education. You know, you can memorize every Grand Cru vineyard in the in the Cote de Nuit, but if you if you can't decipher and distinguish the difference of 10 or 15 feet, then sometimes I feel like that's, that's everything. And so for me, it's always been hands-on experience, sort of self-taught at the piano, you know, uh, sort of self-taught at a lot of things and, uh, mostly based on just doing it. So it sounds like there were people you interacted with and some of them had approaches that worked for you better. And you kind of thought, well, why don't I try to replicate that a little bit in a more ease of use manner down the road in my career? Exactly. You know, and I think it, and it still pertains even to today. I mean, you, you look at where wine has come in the last 15 years as a, as an American consumer from the West coast to the East coast. And the one thing that hasn't really changed is the learning curve never really plateaus. So we're all constantly learning no matter how much we think we know. You know, I did a, a tasting today on carbonic wines or non-carbonic wines, and it was just sort of eye opening to see that, you know, years later, there are these new trends of, and styles of wine being made and, and uh, you know, and be able to, to constantly just learn about it. And the way that I really learned the most was from people being able to describe it in really not basic, but just approachable terms. Being able to really help people point out and find those flavor profiles that they're associating with. It's, it's almost more important to figure out what you don't like about a wine than what you do like about a wine. And I think for... You know, my wife and I and a number of people along the way, we've, we've always been able to, to work with customers at every level. And that's the best part about retail. 
you know, in restaurants, of course, there's, it's a much quicker exchange. You don't really get to have the elaborate conversations because at that moment they're there, they're, they're celebrating, they're, they're with someone else, you know, and they want to make a, a good, smart, quick decision on a wine based on the food they're having or what they like at that moment. You know, in retail, you really get a chance to, to discuss it, to talk about it and to get people to open up their minds. You know, when I, I was a sommelier at Lupa when it first opened up and I assisted Robert Bohr and I will say, I mean, he, he's amazing. I, I, I learned more from him in probably three months than I did in, in the prior three years of working in the industry. He had a very easy approach and way of, of being able to point out the, the great characteristics of any wine to the point where you had to open your mind in order to appreciate it. It was about wine appreciation as opposed to how much you could memorize. And, you know, I remember working that floor and walking around and opening all these, you know, Leonardo Lacasio wines and all these Southern rustic Italian things that, that I didn't like. I didn't like them. I didn't understand them. Uh, and I would go and I'd open them for the table and I would sell them and we'd talk about them and people would taste them and they would love them. They would love them so much that I had to figure out what is this that I'm missing? What is it about this whole interaction that I'm not getting? And I think it was, it was those moments when you have to really open your minds up and really help, you know, yourself develop a, a, a greater appreciation for what's in that glass in front of you. What was your answer to that question? Which one? About what you weren't getting about the wine. Well, it was it was an answer that I'm still uh, working on. You know, it was something that every time I taste something that I, it's like, it's almost like a song and you hear it for the first time, you're not quite sure. But after the fifth time you hear it, you know it better, you fall more in love with it and you, you groove along with it, right? And I think for me, wine is very similar. You know, I don't jump into a situation with a critical approach, which I know uh, is, is probably not the best thing for a buyer. I don't look for fault. I look for uh, enjoyability because that's what I know is the easiest thing to relay. You're more to of the, a karaoke man. Exactly. That's <laughs> uh, that's a, a whole nother conversation. But yeah, definitely. You know, and it's really about 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 that. I think sort of approach for me over the years. So. so, what was the segue from San Francisco to New York? Well, I had gotten hired to do an opera in Westchester. And I had a couple of friends here at the time, and I knew sort of the inevitability. I grew up in Massachusetts, so the inevitability of getting back to the East Coast and, of course, New York, and, and especially for singing in those days. And, and, you know, I could work in almost any restaurant at that point. You know, I think my first job here in New York was Gotham Bar and Grill for a few years. And, you know, I, I, I sort of began the, you know, uh, working there with, uh, with a lot of West Coast wine knowledge and very little French knowledge. And I had established, you know, some, some good Italian, I think, knowledge before that at that point. But it was really, uh, it was really about getting to New York, getting into this opera and getting into the scene here. And then uh, picking up a job at, at Gotham was great in those days because I worked for some pretty amazing people. George Thomas, who taught me more about wine and in the same idea in, in just a short couple of years than I, I, I still could have learned by myself or from any book. What was it like working for Pitali? Portali is is such a sweet person, and he was he kept a very cool kitchen. The food was always you know um, it was always good. It was very consistent. It was a very consistent menu. It's the right vertical cuisine at that time, right? I mean, well, yeah, exactly. Everything was high and tall and beautiful and stunning, and it looked amazing. But the way that he prepared the dishes were also great, and it lended itself to to really understanding um, wine pairings a little bit better than. Uh, 
than a lot of places I had worked at at the time. How so? Well, his use of, I think, of ingredients and sauces in a very old school sort of sauce component with every particular dish. And, uh, and, and that was always something that, that, that I think I was sort of more drawn to. How do we pair this? What are we pairing this with and why? You're sitting there with a giant wine list of Gotham Bar and Grill, and you've got this really straightforward but well-executed food. And people come in and they're looking for, for all kinds of different things, you know, uh, whether it be, you know, financial base, you know, they want to get an expensive bottle or they want to get a Bordeaux or they want to get a Burgundy or whatnot. And, and, and in those days, I will say that it wasn't quite as much of a, of a thing, the real pairing concept than it, it is today. Cause now we're getting that, that next step of really, what are we going to pair this with and why, and what ingredients are specific that it will accentuate the flavors of the wine or accentuate the flavors of the the herbs and spices that are used. And, and I think in those days it was very, it was very, it was a very French based book, obviously. Um, and we had a, a tremendous amount of Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and West coast too. So it was pretty easy, but the food was delicate, you know, and it needed sort of a delicate hand. And if you, you know, you had to really help people navigate their way through that list. Otherwise you'd, you'd end up pretty quickly destroying one of those dishes. And again, working for Alfred was, I think just a great experience for me. I'd, I'd come from working at one market restaurant in San Francisco at that time with George Marone, who, who led a very loud kitchen. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he really inspired people with a little bit of fire. And coming into Alfred's kitchen, you know, I had, I, I had a, it was almost like a night and day difference. You know, it was a very quiet, very cool, very collected atmosphere. It was a place that people could create and build and discuss and debate. And that was, that was a great way to enter, I think, New York City and the restaurant industry of New York City. So it was, it was pretty great working for Alfred, I will say. Is that the before Michael Greenlee era? Um, that was actually during. Yeah, I was there right, right during that whole, that whole part of it. And uh, Michael was great. Great guy to work for and with, you know. I remember when, when we put on a list of, of Riesling, an entire page of Riesling and all the servers and captains who had been there for many years were scratching their heads like, what are you, really? And I think he had more of an insight as to the direction for that wine program in a way, you know, and, and how to really uh, look at that food a little bit differently and get away a little bit from those bigger style wines. I mean, you have to, you know, you know, I mean, that the, the points and scores were such a big part of the 90s into obviously 2000s and and I think, you know, he, he had a little bit of foresight to, to really look at wine as opposed to an accompaniment, as a, a more of a, a leader of that particular experience of that restaurant. And that's what I, I took away from working with him. A very diplomatic approach and a very smart intellect when it came down to working with pairing these wines with that particular menu. And again, you're not dealing with a menu that changed much over those years. It was a pretty straightforward menu with a lot of classic recipes that they did just very well every time. And being able to all of a sudden incorporate an entire page of Riesling, and this was in 94, 90, no, no, 96. Um, I think that, you know, and, and it didn't take long for everybody to, to learn about them. It was just new and it was uh, unchartered and it was before the big vintage of 01. Uh, which, which all of a sudden seemed to put Riesling on the map, at least from Germany. And, uh, and so it was, it was kind of exciting to, to be able to have that kind of experience, you know, long before I think it really became as popular as it is today. And you segued out of restaurants and started working for WineBid, and how did that go about? Yeah, I, I had started um, doing a little bit of consulting. I was buying for Raoul's for many years, and I was starting to just burn out a little bit. It was a lot of work, you know. Um, 
And we were able to sort of muster together a little bit of a little bit of loose change and open up our first wine shop. This is you and your wife. That's right. Yeah. And, and how did you met? Uh, we met at Lupa. Yeah, yeah. We met at Lupa. She trained me my first day, man. It's uh, it was pretty funny, you know. I walked in and and I said, "Yeah, I'm training today." And she goes, "Well, nobody told me." And I think I was kind of smitten from day one, but maybe took her a few more months to come around. And but I do remember we tasted our very first Paolo Bea Sagrantino together, and that was, and I think for many people, sort of an epiphany wine, um, all the way to the point where I began to reach out to Neil Rosenthal, and you know, and this was in uh, the year 2000, late '99. And we were, uh, you know, and then later we got married in 2001. It didn't take too long. And, uh, and of course, the, the, the one of two wineries we went to on our honeymoon was to go visit with Giampiero and Paolo Bea. Yeah, yeah. So we opened, up, we opened up Smith & Vine in 2004. And at that point, I had already begun working for winebid.com. That was a pretty interesting look at the industry to see you in those days wine sales online, how the internet was affecting the industry, how points and scores were affecting the way people bought wine, let alone online. What'd you see? I mean, what's the difference well, between working in a restaurant and working in wine sales online? Well, I mean, wine sales online, you, you have no interaction with the guest or the customer at that point. What you're trying to do is facilitate a process uh, and a process in which you need to find the ways to make it successful, right? And the ways to make it successful, and I think it's still has an impact on wine sales online, but um, points and scores, yes, sadly. You know, something I never really cared for, but it was interesting for me to look at the bias opinions of certain publications and how that would actually pertain to millions and millions of dollars in sales. And so for me, it was about learning the vintages and understanding why the scores and points and reviews and critics had a meaningful place. Um, it was about understanding the entire scope of, of how to sell wine online at a, at a, at a high volume. And I mean, you, you, I still follow and, and hang out with the CEO of the company and I still follow their auctions each week and, and get a sense as to how it's changed and how it's working. I mean, in 2008, if you thought there was something that was allocated, you could get a vertical of, I don't care what it is. And you still financial downturn. Yeah. And everybody just finally started liquidating sellers and dumping things out. If you wanted any of the big names from DRC to whatever, you still can. You can go online and, and, and get a vertical. But I think in those days, I think a lot of people bought blindly based on someone else's recommendation. Again, this is why I love retail. You know, you really get to, to work with that person. That's also why I loved restaurant too. You know, you can't really BS your way through a bottle of wine, you know, and describe it to somebody and then have them say, okay, let's get that one. And then they, they open it. Uh, you open it up for them and then they taste it and they go, that's not anything like what you talked about. And retail, there's a little bit of a of a, of a, you know, you're not tasting it right then and there with that person, but you are discussing it and talking about it and trying to give them your opinion and try to help them bring it home and then come back for more. And that's where we found, I think, our biggest success in retail across the way is people really beginning to find our palates and the selection that we have in the shops and uh, really be able to sort of get behind them and, and, and trust them. And it takes time. It takes time to do that. But, uh, but over, of course, time, you've, you've got, uh, you know, the, the whole goal is to reduce the hit or miss ratio in such a big way. You know, nine out of 10 stores you go to still in this country, you could buy 10 bottles and really not like about two or three of them, right? And I think that's something that's, that's, uh, that's completely different in our stores. You buy 10 bottles, you're going to come back for, for 12 more. And mostly because we've done that pre-editing. 
Because the discount's on 12. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Nice>. Burned <laughs> exactly. once, not twice, my friend. <laughs> but, um, you know, and that's, you know, and that's, and that's sort of how I'd always shop too, is I'd go and I'd get a bunch of things, I'd bring them home and, and I'd always be disappointed with, with, you know, a half of the selection or a high percentage of the selection from a, a general liquor store. And so when we opened up Smith and Vine, the goal was to take that wine list approach from a restaurant and apply it to a retail setting. We opened up with a ten dollar and under table, and it was a blast. It was how it was a the way wines that we, were ten dollars. Yeah, all the wines not were the ten t- and under. Not the table. Not the table. The table was super cheap, and people loved it. And people loved it. <laughs> no, but you had wines on the table over ten. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was and it was again. We called it our buy the glass program, and it was a way for people to come in and mix and match, and and then come back and go. You know what, man? Every time I get a case out of this this table, the wines are really good, and that's a hard price point to ensure quality. And, uh, you know, that's a very difficult price point. I think it's something that, uh, that we're very good at. I mean, we taste thousands of wines a year that fall under the $10, uh, you know, price point. And I think that's, that's, that's where we, and then we only pick about 20 or 30 at a time, you know, and I think that's really where a store like that. Um, when did you start with the mixed six packs? The mixed six packs are, are great. We started those, uh, well, about about six or seven years ago when you really began to all of a sudden start finding those little six pack holders. And and we found a line with a, with a buddy's company who made them for us. And and so the goal there was, you know, let's make it easy. You know, people are going to have a barbecue. Let's give them a six pack full of barbecue wines. Or, you know, people are going to have a dinner party and they need the aperitif and they need the white wine to go with the appetizer, and the, you know, the red wine to go with the entree and then the sweet wine to finish it up. And the goal would be to really create clever, you know, basically six packs for people to really look at it, whether it be a rosé six pack or anything where you just come in and go, you know what, I begin to trust this place. I'm going to go ahead and blindly just grab a few things and then we'll talk about them and then we'll come back and we'll, uh, you know, we'll get some more. So it's... Because a lot of times there are little descriptions on the the sales tag. Yeah, that's right. We do. You know, we try to give you about a one or two sentence description on on the shelf talker. The technical term, right? But um, but but, but like a lot a of times, Parker quote. It's no, no, and and a lot of times it's it's really. I've never been a big fan of suggesting to people what they're supposed to taste in a wine. It's too subjective. What you may taste, I may not. What someone else may like, I may not. You know, the goal is with those little shelf talkers is to give a little two sentence description of something fun and an inspiration on who and when and how to use that particular product, you know? And I think that we've had a lot of success with that. You know, people chuckle, they giggle, they look at some, they laugh at others. Uh, But at the end of the day, we're there. You know, there's somebody there to really be able to have that conversation and really get in depth about it. You know, um, again, I've never been a big fan of people, you know, telling you you're supposed to taste raspberries in this and grapefruit in that. Uh, You know, it's again, it's just too subjective. Um, what do you do when you absolutely hate something that someone else loves? You know what I mean? And so that right there alone is the basis of, of how we approach the entire selection in the store. You know, we give such a, I'm not buying for me, you know, I'm, I'm not buying for my own bias. I'm buying for a, for a customer base that loves anything and everything. But what I need to do is make sure that when I pick up a multiple channel, de Abruzzo, then it's absolutely textbook and there's no Merlot in it, you know, and then it's absolutely uh, typical of where it came from and who made it, and more importantly, the vintage it came from. To me, that's sort of the the way we've always approached it. It's I, I wouldn't say I'm the most critical palate. I would say I have a very easy palate. I love wine. I love good wine. And from there, I think that's what's made us, in one respect, 
so successful with retail is, um, you know, we, we, we pick wines that are just enjoyable and that you're going to want to come back for and talk about more. You know, we have the class space too, right? So we've got our classroom in the back there and education has always been, you know, something that's, that's, that's important. Obviously I used to do it for restaurant staffs. And when we opened up Smith and Vine, I didn't get that uh, outlet anymore to, to talk and educate about a wine or two or six. And so shortly after we opened, we launched a program called Seminars in Your Home, in which we would literally, I would go into, you know, a, a, a customer's apartment. We'd crack a bunch of wines with a group of friends and we'd really Did they know you it. were coming or? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just curious exactly how it went down. Well, you know? sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> you know, uh, everybody loves a surprise, right? <laughs> Take off your shoes in the hallway. We're going to tiptoe over here. <laughs> Nobody knows you're here. <laughs> Don't <laughs> clink the glasses too loud and but no it was, loud laughing. <laughs> exactly. But it was a great way to sort of learn about um, everybody's palate, what they're looking for you know, and why it should be so enjoyable. Um, I mean, why are there, there are four cups in a, or glasses in a, in a particular bottle? It's because you're going to enjoy it with somebody. Usually there's only three for me, but okay. <laughs> or two if, uh, <laughs> if you're at my house, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really about that. And so that sort of lended itself to a store we opened a few years ago on Corton and, and Atlantic Avenue called Brooklyn Mont Exchange. We're no longer there, but it was a great place because we had a tasting room there for 40 people. And that's when I was able to really open up the doors and we would, you know, do two or three classes a week and events. And, and we're, and now we're able to do that at the new store back label as well, because we've got, you know, we decided to go after a space that, uh, that had a private event space and that we could do these classes and seminars, but at a very accessible level, you know, they're not expensive. They're not pretentious. There's no nonsense. We're going to open some wine. You know, we're doing a lobster roll and lobster wine class. You know what I mean? Things like that. We're going to do a one bourbon, one scotch, and one beer class. And and it's about, you know, getting people together and having a conversation about wines and spirits and cheeses and things like that, and, and even beer for that matter, you know, and, and really incorporating not just the industry, but our entire community at large to enjoy it with us. And I think that's that's where I've found my place in the industry. Why did you originally pick Brooklyn? Good question. I had a cousin who lived here in 95, and I crashed on her on her, on her couch for about two months until I found a place. And I'd kept hearing about Cobble Hill and Brooklyn Heights and how beautiful it was down there. And just the first apartment I stumbled upon that I didn't need to have roommates, this was very important in those days, uh, happened to be right off of Court Street in Cobble Hill. And it was such a great neighborhood. It was low key. It was loaded with artists and, and uh, social workers and just great people. You know, uh, still is, of course, you know, and, um, and so I ended up just sort of rooting there and I, I have, n- have never left since. So and now you're in Manhattan. How do you see the differences between Brooklyn and Manhattan in terms of retail? Well, so far, I will say there's not a huge difference at all, really. You know, so far, I mean, it's still new. We're only two months old and I haven't gone through our first holiday season yet. So that'll be kind of a neat experience to see what's happening then. The one thing that I love is that people don't come in the door with, you know, a list of things or products or reviews or can, you know, can you get this? Can you get that? Do you have this? Do you have that? There, there's a very open mind right now 
in New York, especially in Manhattan. And we get that in Brooklyn as well, where people are just open. You know, what are you going to do tonight? I'm going to have chicken. What's the best chicken wine you have, you know, or pizza? And and we can have the same sort of conversation. But then all of a sudden you get that restaurateur that comes in and they're like, oh, look at your Chablis selection. This is wonderful. And, and it's great, you know, but and you can have a different conversation there as well. I mean, yes, it's safe to say that the average price points a touch higher. People are, are you know, uh, what was a $10 and under table in Brooklyn is now a $20 and under table in Manhattan. But I think that's a very fair price point. We have a ton of wine on the table, too, and a lot of things at 11 and 12 bucks as well. You know, price point is still, um, no matter where you are, Brooklyn or Manhattan, price point is still, though, you know, a lot, I, think, I think a lot of people walk into the, to the doors of a store looking to pick out something for a specific event or occasion, and they already have a price point in mind. And so for me, my goal there is to sort of find them the best particular wine or spirit for that particular event or occasion and end in the price point that they need it in, you know? Um, do, you, do you ever get that guy that was previously on the prices right and he always asked for $1? <laughs> What's your price? No, but $1. people do ask for the three-buck chuck, right? <laughs> what used to be two, yeah. So anyway, it's it's uh, it, it definitely is a very, um, I would say New York in general now, and, and maybe just, you know, nationally, I would say that it's no longer the name recognition appellation that people used to say, oh, Sancerre, I like Sancerre. Now it's really who's Sancerre and what vintage is it? And to me, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're all aiming for, right? Is to get that conversation to a higher level in a way and to get people to, to have higher expectations of what they're going to spend their money on. And I think that everybody should have a store that they can rely on and depend upon that they can go into and get a little bit of information or a lot of information and be able to really discuss in detail if they want to the particular wines that they're that they're going after and and that and that people are more educated now than ever before about wine as a as a commodity you know it's a, it's pretty amazing how how far it's come in just 15 years imagine 15 more years where this industry is going to be i mean to me that's that's kind of fascinating do you have any hints as to what that might look like you know, it's so hard to to tell. I think you've got this division in the marketplace of the the popular sort of big fruit forward style wines. And then you've got the the other side of the tracks, which are all the, you know, the 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 natural and organic and biodynamic and the sort of viticulturally practiced wines. And I think that that market's always going to have a bit of a divide. You know, I do. But I think that if we all try to learn more as opposed to just drinking something because it tastes good, if we decide to figure out for ourselves what about it tastes good or what about it doesn't taste good, then we're going to be able to describe in more detail as a consumer, as a customer to any sommelier, any restaurateur, any retail store that we go into, um, we're going to be able to describe in better detail exactly what we're looking for. And hopefully that store or that restaurant or that sommelier can encourage you to look at the different nuances and details, you know, whether it be the earth or the soil type or whether it be the viticultural practice or just because it's a big, juicy, hot climate red, you know, but hopefully you'll be able to, and I think that's what's going to change. I think that um, the story will become even more meaningful. It's just beginning. Five years ago, wasn't quite as where it is even today about the story of a wine. And I think that's what's going to win in the end getting people to the time and place that it was made as opposed to just throwing it back, you know? And I think making sure and ensuring that the people that are in the industry 
especially leaders of the industry, continue to focus on wines of individuality. When two wines taste the same, there's very little reason at that point to do what we're doing so hard. You know, and I think if you come into a store like ours and many great stores in the city, there are no two wines that taste the same. And then you go into the other type of retail store where there are a lot of things that taste the same. And so for, for myself, that's what I think 15 years from now will be a real focus. The history and the tradition of particular regions and appellations, um, the, 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 the textbook expressions of those particular wines. And the only thing that we'll have to learn about from year to year is the vintage. Was it difficult? Was it challenging? Was it great? Was it beautiful? Everything in, in and around that that can lead us to, you know, understanding it even more closely. Sometimes when people start retail stores, they seem to fall along that divide that you mentioned. Like, hey, I'm only going to do natural wine or, hey, we're looking for easy to understand brands mm-hmm. that are produced in big quantities that we can sell for low prices mm-hmm. or high ratings, that kind of thing. So, why didn't you choose to go one of those routes? Is there a reason? Ah, uh, you know, I wish, you know, I don't even, I don't even speak that language. You know, I think mostly because my experience really came from restaurants and from working with great chefs and working with great programs, that it was never about those wines, those brands, those products, essentially that, that do and have been such a big part of the the, the, you know, retail circuit in the nation over the last 20 years. I mean, it's kind of funny to me in a way, because here we are in the middle of Chelsea with a very educated, very, very cool palette and, and clientele. And I'm putting things out there that to me in Brooklyn have been a part of, you know, vintage to vintage, a part of our life and that customers just know. It's, it's definitely, you know what I mean? Is that, you know, and, and here all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a neighborhood with a lot of other wine shops that are all pushing a lot of those big brands. And there, people are coming in and going, I've never seen this before. I've never heard of this before. And to me, it's, it's an estate that's been available for, for 20, 30 years in America and has been around for, for generations. But that's what I think is kind of fascinating for me is the quality of these types of wines that, that we're putting out there have never been seen before in this neighborhood, which baffles me. Even Kings County Distillery and and really interesting spirits. They'd be like, what are these little bottles? These are crazy. I've never seen these before. And and for me, I was sort of more taken back by by that. And people are people are asking for for specific brands once in a while that 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 I don't even I don't even know. And I know that they're just very general and 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 sort of commercial. So usually they have cake in the name. I've found there's a couple with cake in the name and and generally an animal, <laughs> you know. So you know, but, but fuzzy ear cake, <laughs> exactly. So I and I knew that we were going to be opening a store in a, in a neighborhood that would provide a completely different selection than the norm, and uh, but I didn't realize that people wouldn't recognize as many brands as they don't recognize in the store. And so to me, that's the best part about it. It's almost like starting in Brooklyn all over again. You know, I've got to develop and create these, these, the awareness of these particular growers. But yeah, I didn't go down a big commercial level and I didn't go down a big organic natural level either. So that's more popular to do these days. So why did you say, Hey, you know, I'm not going to bang that drum so loud. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it's good. Just because it's organic doesn't mean it's good. You know, and for me, it has to have, the, the proof is in the bottle, right? The proof is in the glass. I mean, once you open that bottle, you're either going to go, wow, this is amazing. Or you're going to be like, eh, whatever. Or it's not going to appeal or it's bitter or whatever, you know? And I find that the natural wine movement there is fantastic. There's a lot of great stuff there. 
you know, the whole idea of getting out of the way and letting the fruit do the talking and letting, you know, the vintage express itself and having very little or no intervention, wonderful idea, you know, but it doesn't necessarily always mean you're going to get an enjoyable glass of wine. For me, it's, it's more important that we find things that are true to their form and varietally correct. You know, tasting a Pinot Noir from Australia that tastes like a cab from Napa makes no sense to me, you know. But sometimes people go one way or the other because that gives them a way of standing out in a crowded marketplace. You're entering a new crowded marketplace, which is Manhattan. You said there's a number of stores. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like instead of wanting to go in one firm direction to sort of make a statement, you've decided not to do that. Do you see downsides to doing that? No, I don't. I really don't. I think because at the end of the day, you'll get a bottle that you enjoy and you'll want to come back and learn more about where it came from and, and even get another bottle as opposed to being too outside of the box. You know, at the end of the day, it's about enjoyability. We need to enjoy our wine. We need to make sure that who we're going to enjoy it with enjoys it as well. And, and for me, what I do is I go after quality first and price point second. Um, and that doesn't necessarily pertain to one side of the tracks. There are brands in my store that are, that are sort of, you know, and I've got Heights, you know, the Grignolino, right? But I mean, I've got Heights, a recognizable name. I've got Ridge Cellars, you know, the Three Valleys, because it's a, it's a damn good wine for that style of wine. And then I've got, you know, Olivier Lemisson, all these crazy growers too that, that work very biodynamically or naturally as well. I think what you need and what every customer should expect out of the store that they get their wine from is that you have everything, not just something. You don't pigeonhole yourself into one side of the industry or the other. For me, it's about the entirety of what the world of wine has to offer. So what about the look of the space? Is it important to you to almost, in a way, create what might be a restaurant space in terms of finishings and fixtures? You know, I, I think it needs, to be, it needs to be inviting. It can't be cluttered. That's how I think we're very lucky we have such a big space that's not cluttered. And we still have over 1,400 labels in the store. So there's a huge selection there. Which and we're just beginning. That's a, a lot store. of inventory. Yeah. For, especially for a new store. And a lot of people are asking, aren't you going to stack cases and do more? And I'm like, no, I, I really want people to be able to enjoy it and, and not worry about knocking something over. Cause there's a lot of space that's open on the floor. Exactly. As yeah, opposed to case. Day. Exactly. There's plenty of space to browse, plenty of space to, to look and talk and take your time. There's no rush. You know, a lot of times you go into stores, you got to get in and out of there. You got to make a quick decision. And I don't want people to make a quick decision. I want them to really be able to look. It's a big selection. There's a lot of great stuff in there. And for everybody, it's for everybody, not just the, the cork dorks of us, you know, the, the real geeks of us, and not just for people who want just to, you know, something delicious. You know, it needs to be a space that's open where you can really enjoy the way you shop there. Uh, and I think that's what you should expect now from, from any store that you go into. And that's why we picked a bigger space. We wanted a bigger space not to hold, you know, 10,000 different wines. We picked a bigger space to give people room to shop and not rush and not rush that decision. It's an important decision what you're going to have for that special occasion, even if it's just pizza, <laughs> you know? It's still a very important decision to me, what you have with that pizza. And I think, you know, in, in nine out of 10 stores still that you go to in this industry, in the country, you got to make a quick decision. You're, you're, you're cramped, you're cluttered, it's too hot. You know, you've, you've got you've to really get in and get out and make a, make a rash decision. And then what happens? It, there's a percentage of time that you get at home and you open it and you go, ah, oh, 
I should have got that other one. I think I saw this other one. You know, and I think I've, I've heard that from a lot of people, that they love the layout. It's a very user-friendly way. It's not just by country either. You know, almost every store you go into in the United States is, is set up by country. All your French wines are here, your American wines are here, your Australian wines are there. And, and for me, it's always been about bringing the old world and the new world together. How do you do that, right? So we've got our $20 and under table, and that's one way. It's kind of fun. People can really, and there's such a palette on that table because you've got high acid, bright, cold climate red wines to, you know, big monastrels from, from the south of Spain. And so you, you've got to be really careful, but it does, it, it, it brings it all together. You know, we've got another shelving unit that's based on soil type. So people can really understand what sand or granite means or certainly limestone and how to find that in the wine. You know, we've got, uh, we've got a whole shelving type based on high acid, people that want freshness. That to me, I think is the next sort of, I wouldn't want to call it a trend, but I think that people are finally almost done with the overextracted wines in a store. And you want freshness, you want cooler climates, you want acidity, you want things that are going to balance better with the food that you're having and not give you that hangover the next day, you know? Uh, so the goal was to bring multiple ways together for the old world and the new world to coexist. And, and it's kind of, it's exciting. It's a fun place to, to check it out. I think a lot of people have, have recognized that there are areas that are, it's, it's a very, very approachable layout. From start to finish. One of the things I like about it is that the whites are on top and the reds are on the bottom of the shelf mm -hmm. for the same category. That's right. So it, there's almost kind of an equivalency there. If you like high acid, you might like this high acid white. You might like this high acid red. They're on the same shelf, but that's right. they're just split up in a way that's, that's actually pretty user-friendly. Exactly. You know, and I think that's so far what we've what we've noticed about two things about the store that people are really digging is, is you know, the layout, you know, and how, how easy it is to navigate your way through it. Uh, and again, how much space that you have, you know, how much space that you have and uh, uh, to, to sort of walk around. And then you've got, you know, you've got a, a, an amazing group of people that work there, too. And myself, I'm there all the time. And I've got a, people I'm, seem nice. People are great. Shop. Yeah, totally. You know, and, and the goal is to uh, is to offer that service. You know, I don't think you have to be Danny Meyer to understand hospitality. Right. So and I think for me, especially coming from Brooklyn and from waiting tables for so many years, there's only one way to really have a great conversation with somebody about about wine, and that's to have a great conversation about it and to make sure that they feel confident to ask silly questions because they want to know the answer to the cork industry or they want to know the answer to, you know, balance. What does that mean, sugar and acid? And, and, and where would I find that? You know, and how do I find that? You know, we had a great conversation today about ripeness and it led right into the whole classification system of Germany and how it's, it's remarkable. And so to me, those types of conversations, those types of questions, they're getting tougher. People are wanting to, to learn more at a higher level, uh, mostly because of the stores that they're now able to frequent. There are a lot of good stores now in the city and uh, the restaurants and the wine programs and the whole industry uh, in general has, has gotten us all to, to ask tougher questions. For the moment, Back Label seems to be focusing on current vintage wines. Is that a part of the story forever, or is it just a matter of developing inventory, or what's the It's a, a little bit of both. I mean, we definitely have a little, uh, a little back area, right, where we've got a couple of things with some years tagged onto it. We've definitely got a few things hidden in the shelves, too, from O2, Raffo, Chinon, or, you know, uh, there's, you know, some, there's an O1, Spotley's a Riesling from Carl Earhart, you know. So there's a few gems that are sort of hiding in there that are, that are not overly expensive. But I also wanted to make sure, so we've got the $20 and under table, but there's a lot of shelf space, which means 
you know, that I don't want to get too expensive. There's there's a lot of wines under $20 on the shelves, and they really cap around 50 I don't want to get too crazy and make people think they have to spend a lot of money when they come in. It's never going to be about that. Have you seen people get turned off by high price points, even though that there's lower ones in the store and kind of turn around? Well, not for, for our store. Right. I mean, but I have, it, but yes, in general, but I have seen people get really turned on by our average price point and saying, this is actually really great, you know, or things like, wow, you guys, this is a really smart average. You know, this is really good. This is going to do really well. You know, this is, this is how I shop. And so we do have a real sweet spot between that 20 and 40 or even 18 and 40. And that includes some Premier Cru Burgundies and, and Bordeaux and things that are, that are pretty exceptional. We have a very, very fair markup. If anything, a buck or two below, and in some cases above any other store. But I know that we're, we, we know how to price. You know, we've been doing this for so long and we're coming from Brooklyn where you know, in Brooklyn, you really can't gouge. There's just, it's not, it's not, it doesn't work. You know, people will sniff it out, you know, uh, in a heartbeat, you know, so. Are there lessons that you learned the hard way at Smith & Vine that you said, well, we're not going to do it that way when we open this new place? <laughs> Great question. Yeah, I mean, there, there are lessons that you learn in 10 years of business that make you do things easier, you know, less mistakes. You have to be open to making mistakes in small business. If you don't, then you're not taking risks. And what's the point of opening a small business? But I would say that our philosophy hasn't changed. There are no mistakes in the way that we started out to the way that we're doing business today. You know, it's always going to be about that user-friendly approach. It's always going to be about a friendly person to speak to about wine. You know, it's always going to be about hospitality and, and inspiration and reasons for people to enjoy. You know, um, we use the same point of sale. You know, there, there hasn't been too much of a, of a learning curve when it comes to mistakes outside of contractors and, <laughs> and build-outs uh, and the business plan. That certainly gets pretty easy, you know. Um, a new space, a new location, you know, the, the, the only mistakes you can make there is overestimating or underestimating and not being prepared or ready for what's going to happen. And that's something I think that we've done very, very well with this new store. Got a lot of shelf space. I didn't want to start bare. I wanted to make sure that we had plenty of products out there and wines and spirits that people can really go, wow, they're not just starting out here. You know, and I will say that when we opened Smith & Vine 10 years ago, we maybe had three bottles on every shelf because we were conservative. We didn't know. And so now it was like, you know what? Let's fill these shelves. Let's get the store ready. Let's make this something that, and not have to wait two years or three years to get to it. Uh, so I think if anything, that was definitely something that we learned from, from day one. And at back label, the shelves are movable. You can move them around the room. Yeah, that's right. We've got, uh, a whole back wall that runs about 50 feet long that's on wheels. So we can, and that separates our private event space in the back. Um, but we can open the entire store up. And, you know, for example, we have live music on Friday nights. People come in and there's people dancing and we're doing wine tastings. And it's, it's, again, it's about reinventing the average liquor store, you know? How do we do that? How do we get people, and it, and it starts with selection, it starts with hospitality and service, but you've also got to find really neat and fun ways to to get people to 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 grow an appreciation for your selection in your store and and a little live music, right? That's always going to be part of my my life and and certainly great wine and uh, and just that sort of great atmosphere. I think that's what we've definitely created. So speaking about competing with the average liquor store being different than that, what's your approach to the spirits that you stock? 
Well, spirits is 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 pretty new. We have an amazing spirits buyer, um, Allison Klug, who was down at Ventry for a while. She's got again more knowledge in her in her pinky than most people I've ever worked with on a spirits front, and is very proactive with a lot of local distilleries. And uh, you know, and and very similar to the way we select wine, it's based on quality, and but it's also based on smaller distilleries. Let's help advocate for those new distilleries. Let's help get their names out there. We don't need to stock absolute and stoli. We don't need a number of flavored items. You know what I mean? What we need is to find those diamonds in the rough that are just getting going and help give them a place on the shelf, give them a, a really good piece of real estate in a really, really great store, and then be able to talk about it and educate people. So we're, we're digging deep across the country and certainly the globe to find not just wine, but the spirit selection she put together is, I think, one of the best I've seen in a, in a wine shop. And so far, I mean, we've already been sort of noted for having one of the best, let's say, Japanese whiskey selections. I mean, whatever, it's cool. But the goal is, again, is to, is to not make it easy for ourselves. We make it very difficult on ourselves by choosing to dig as deep as we do. We don't have things that sell themselves. We sell them for them, right? So the goal is then to to not rely on someone else's review or someone else's score or someone else's opinion. It has to be us. It has to be our decision. You know, there's no real retail gimmicks and games like you still see. It used to be 99.99, now it's 15.99. Come on, really? And you still see that. There's an industry full of it. And uh and sadly they're sort of full of it, right? So for us it's about finding those great products and spirits and giving people, you know, we have a whole shelving unit on elixirs and just mixing in cocktails. So we own a, a bar as well in Brooklyn called the Jaquak. And it's known for one of the, probably one of the top, I would think, you know, uh, cocktail spots in Brooklyn. And that's a, that's a big statement, right? There are a lot of great spots now in Brooklyn, especially for mixed drinks, you know, but I've been, I've been a part of that industry for a very long time as well. And so the goal there is to showcase things that you have to find inspiration for. You have to come up with an idea and a reason to use them. You're not just going to go in and buy a Sorel liqueur unless you know exactly what to do with it. And then you've got people there that can help you figure out what to do with it. Even if it's just to pour it on top of vanilla ice cream, it doesn't matter. The goal is to really make sure that we've got products for anybody who wants to find something neat and interesting and unique and then go home and, and create with it for the sole purpose of sharing it and enjoyability. So you're also involved with Stinky Brooklyn and the Stinky that's also now in Manhattan next door mm -hmm. to Back Label. What's it like selling cheese versus selling wine? And did either of those approaches rub off on each other? Yeah, they certainly do. I mean, I've always been lucky that, you know, it's, it's it, you know, I'm, I, I love spirits. I'm good at it, but it's better to hire somebody who can do it better, right? Same thing with cheese. I'm very good at cheese. I love cheese, but it's always better to hire somebody who's better than you at it, right? But what I do is I apply the same approach and technique to the way I look at wine, the way I judge pickles, coffee, chocolate, all of these all of these particular things you go into with an open mind and you look at the color and you look at the paste and you look at how dense and rich it is and you look at the season that it comes from. The coolest thing about cheese is you've got four seasons a year. It's like four vintages in a year. You know, the milk changes based on the elevation of the animal. The milk changes based on the month of the year. And so that's what I find the most exciting part about cheese is it's constantly, again, teaching us about all the different nuances and styles and elements that can, that can make the flavor change, uh, vintage to vintage, month to month. 
And so with cheese, the, the approach is very much, you know, the same in a way. It's about awareness. It's about helping people navigate through an industry. And it's harder with cheese because I feel like people have gotten to where they are with, with being able to describe the wine they like faster than they can with cheese, right? Because cheese is still very daunting. It's still very, there's a lot of unknown. You know, yes, there's only a few different animals that we get cheese from, but but there's still so many complexities and layers that make things unique. And, uh, and, and, and it's also about what the maker can do to it to change the the recipe or or the the mold if you will you know and and so we we try to come at it with a very same approach you know letting people really decide what they're going to drink with that cheese and letting people really helping them really decide on how to put together that perfect cheese plate you know we're going to do any meats a couple of cured meats and all the different accompaniments that go along with it you know it's it's fun to put out a big spread and if we're not having fun helping people put out that big spread then we're completely doing it a disservice to ourselves and of course the cheese industry. So we take it very serious, but we still have a very approachable concept. You know, we're, we're stinky. We're not mongers. We're stinky. We just love cheese. We love to talk about cheese. We love people who want to enjoy cheese. And, you know, it's the same thing with, with wine in a way. We don't come at it with a very, you know, high up here kind of, kind of point of view. It's really about getting people to, to share and enjoy it and, uh, and, and learn about it in a really friendly environment. I think that's something that, that is so basic, but seems to still get lost in so many, so many ways. And, and it doesn't mean we're not as serious about it as anybody else. That to me is, is sort of critical. One of the things I noticed at Backlabel is that the salespeople are also the cashier, which doesn't always happen. Right. Like yeah. you ring up with the sales. Totally. Yeah. And same thing with stinky too. You know, we've, we've always had uh, that kind of, I think philosophy of business where, Instead of hiring, you know, a bunch of cashiers who can't talk about the products, that that to me is very unappealing when I go into a store and then they have to flag somebody else down and, and then I can get an answer about a product that I want to know about as opposed to somebody who can right then and there be able to talk about it and help me, you know? And same thing with cheese, same thing with wine. You know, we don't we don't really abide to, you know, even our stock personnel can really enjoy and talk about wine because it's important for me to educate them just as much as the people who really know a lot, you know, in case somebody does ask a question uh, and give them a little bit of insight and knowledge as to why it's a popular wine or, or what about it they liked when they first tasted it. Um, I've, I've obviously tasted everything on the shelves in the store and so has almost the entire staff. I and mean, we we're very aggressive with blind tasting each other on things. We're very aggressive with opening things every day, every night. You know, I try not to keep, uh, when I have reps come in, of course, to talk about wine and to taste us on new things, I try to incorporate everybody. That way there, it's not just me making the decision, but it's also allowing people to see, I've been buying wine in New York since 98, you know, and, and, it, and it, I make it look easy, I think, you know, and, but it's so important for me to allow everybody to taste and share and enjoy it and figure out, will this work for us? Is this easy to sell? Is this something that somebody would come back for a case for? And so it's it's not about the the hierarchy between the upper management and the cashiers. It never will be. You know, we operate too small of a business in a way to allow, you know, there to be a, a an educative difference in the people that work there. And we should all be enjoying it and sharing it together and learning about it together. So you have the background from WineBid, which was an online auction service. What has your approach been to online for the store? It's a uh, online wine sales for a for a retail store is a tricky business, right? 
as I'm sure you know, there are, there are a lot of stores out there that sell wine online and, and they make one or 2% above the wholesale just because they assume that there's a, that there's a loyalty program there with a customer who, you know, who's just price searching anyway, you know? So for me, it's about, yeah, there's, there's ways that we add incentives. Um, there's ways that we can do discounting and things like that. There's ways that we can piggyback on, you know, let's say the popularity of something that comes out or the seasonality of something that comes out, like we'll focus on Rosé and Vino Verde, of course, you know, and then in the fall, we'll focus on Cru Beaujolais and Pinot Noirs. And then we'll, so that's the kind of stuff that we will focus on when we email specials out. I don't think we'll ever be a huge player in the online wine game because I'm not interested in making 2% above. To me, the wine is way more important than that. And the people behind it, are way more important than that to start undercutting and belittling the not just the, the winemakers but the importers and distributors as well just to play some kind of game and I'd rather make a full margin at a very reasonable price and for the person who's looking for that particular wine and knows that that's that's exactly what they're going to get and that's exactly what they want it's still difficult where we excel is getting in front of the person talking to them face to face about the particular wine helping them put together those those cases of wine um, we definitely see, you know, see uh, plenty of online sales and it's going to grow tremendously and that's great. But to me, the focus is on the store and the people, the customers. It's not on the convenience factor, right? Which is different than a lot of retail stores, especially online stores. We're lucky that we've got a great location, a great, a great place in the city. You know, we're not uh, stuck in the middle of uh, a small town upstate that doesn't have a choice but to see a high percentage of their total sales online and play that game. And, and there's plenty of those out there, you know, and we're very lucky that we've got the location, location, location to get people to come in and, and begin to follow us and uh, allow us to follow them in their, in their discovery of the whole industry and in their, in their individual palettes. And again, it's not in my philosophy to publish scores and points. It's, I have no interest in, in that. And that is still a driving force into how people purchase wine online, you know, and it's disappointing uh, in a way because you, you doesn't mean you're always going to like it. So it's about, it's about a, a simple story. It's about a personal relationship to a particular wine. When I send out an email about a wine, it's because I've either been there or I really fell head over heels for it. And I want people to understand that it is special, you know, as opposed to just $2 less than anybody else online or, um, or that someone else said it was really good. <laughs> to me, that, that bears very little future in, in, in the way that I operate retail. So you could have called it 20th Street and Vine, but you didn't. You did back label wine merchants. And why did you decide to call it that? Naming a wine shop is no easy feat, you know. We... We thought about a number of different things, and and it's you either do one of two things when you name a, a wine shop. You either name it based on the location, the address, the neighborhood, the intersection, you know, or you go outside of the box and you name it, you know, something about the industry or, you know, like Appalachian, great name for a for a store, Crush, great name for a store. You know, you can get too kitschy too quickly if you're not careful. And I think being so much from the school of the importer. And for so many years before it was trendy or popular to follow Kermit Lynch or, or Neil Rosenthal or, or, or even Daniel Jonas and, and Peter Wasserman or anybody, you know, that 
that or Becky Wasserman, of course. But for me, it was it was it was that's how I learned. That's how I understood wine. That's how I'm able to to appreciate it and have a relationship to that vineyard is through directly through and only through them. And so we've always sort of been advocates for for the back label. You know, there's a lot of information that you'll find there. Number one is the importer, right? Number two is maybe there's a certification, you know, the alcohol percentage. Maybe it's just that little paragraph about the dog that roams the vineyards that they think is relevant enough to put on their back label. Uh, and we didn't want to call it 20th Street Vintners or the Chelsea Wine something. There's already a million of those. You know, we wanted to make it something that was that was important, but not too crazy, you know, like Pangea. <laughs> which was uh, which was on the table for a minute, <laughs> or no? Then it became pangeology. All right, now now you're just out of your out of your minds, right? So now there's just very little very little point. You know, we we thought about N74 because to me, you know, I've been to Burgundy a lot, and to me, there's 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 obviously a lot there. But but then again, you're too outside of the box, right? You're too. It needs to to have you know naming a store is tricky, and we had to put months and months of thought into it. You know, even though it was a name, I will admit that we came up with about five years ago when I first said, man, that'd be a great name for a store, back label. And we could do like shelving units for for all the different people and all the different importers and distributors. Oh, but I then, see. Like but then it's just like, but then, yeah, but then you've got stores out there and they're in Brooklyn. They're all over the place. And they just know that I've never been in the industry before. But if I go ahead and purchase wines from Kermit Lynch... Or Savio Suarez, then I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to have wines that sell, right? It should be that easy, right? But it's not. It's not that easy. And a lot of people over the years have opened up these fly-by-night stores that underperform and they've never been a part of the industry. And I think that's okay, you know, but it's not an easy way out. It's a tough industry, and you need to constantly inspire yourself and uh, everybody around you, from customers to the industry. And uh, and 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 find it, and sometimes it does. It begins with a name. You know, and it begins with uh, with a name. And, and again, naming a, a wine shop is is tricky. It's very difficult. Patrick Watson, he decided to open a store called Back Label Wine Merchants in Manhattan. He also owns Smith & Vine in Brooklyn and the Stinky Cheese Shops. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Levy. Patrick Watson of Back Label Wine Merchants. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.